This is episode 133 of the Dear Discreet Guide Trouble at Work podcast. This episode is titled The Plague by Albert Camus. This episode is part of our near daily series during the pandemic. Hello, everybody. Welcome to Dear Discreet Guide Trouble at Work, where we talk about work, working, and how to make work better. If it's work-related, we're on it. Who knew talking about work would be this much fun? I'm Jennifer Crittenden, a former CFO and host of the show. And thank you for joining our quest to improve our workplaces. Let's do this. In continuing with our series about literary viruses, today we're going to talk about the novel The Plague by Albert Camus. The French title is La Peste. It was published in 1947 and tells the story of a plague that sweeps the French Algerian city of Oran, a coastal city and a large port. And the plague that is reflected in the novel is based on other epidemics that inflicted the city, but it's set in the 1940s. And in fact, there was no uh, occasion of the plague attacking that city during that time. He used as source material the cholera epidemic that killed a large part of Oran's population in 1899. But again, the time is different from history as compared to the novel. Camus was born in French Algiers, although he was a French citizen as he was born to French parents. And Algeria at that time was a French territory. In fact, it was a French territory from 1830 to 1962, which is kind of crazy when you think about how recent 1962 is and that it was still a French territory at that time. His father died less than a year after he was born, and he was raised by his mother, who worked as a cleaning lady and who was uh, both illiterate and deaf. He would have been familiar with Oran. He lived there with his first wife after he had moved to France and then moved away when the uh, Germans were marching on France during World War II. So I'll start here with a little description about Oran. For its ordinariness is what strikes one first about the town of Oran, which is merely a large French port on the Algerian coast, headquarters of the prefect of a French department. The town itself, let us admit, is ugly. It has a smug, placid air, and you need time to discover what it is that makes it different from so many business centers in other parts of the world. How to conjure up a picture, for instance, of a town without pigeons— without any trees or gardens, where you never hear the beat of wings or the rustle of leaves, a thoroughly negative place, in short. After he left France and was living in Iran with his wife, he taught primary school, and he would have been very familiar with the big soccer stadium that in the novel is used as a strict quarantine area. He probably was also familiar with the stadium from his youth, Uh, He was a very good soccer player and played as the goalkeeper for the Algiers junior team when he was a boy. And he drew parallels, according to one of his biographers, 
between football, human existence, morality, and personal identity, and that he kind of preferred those simplistic values of soccer over the more complicated morality that was imposed by authorities like the state and the church. Uh, kind of interesting modern ideas uh, for us now when we think about the United States and the importance of uh, sports in the way we think about what's fair and uh, so forth. So here's a description of the stadium. The stadium lies on the outskirts of town between a street along which runs a car line and a stretch of wasteland extending to the extreme edge of the plateau on which Iran is built It was already surrounded by high concrete walls, and all that was needed to make escape practically impossible was to post sentries at the four entrance gates. And again, I'm reminded about how often these stories about previous epidemics remind us of modern-day situations. And it wasn't that long ago when the fires in San Diego prompted the authorities to require us to evacuate our homes and head to Qualcomm Stadium, where we'd be kept quote-unquote safe. And of course, stadiums were also used during Katrina to house people. Anyway, a little bit more about Camus and his soccer career. He actually contracted tuberculosis at age 17, and that would certainly affect his attitude toward disease in the future. Because the disease was infectious, he got sent to his uncle's house, who was a butcher and who got him interested in philosophy. Got to watch out for those butchers. He was able to land a scholarship with a prestigious lycée, and uh, continued to study philosophy, including Nietzsche, which again, you know, for our young people, it's like, watch out for Nietzsche. So he went to the University of Algiers and got his bachelor's in philosophy. He played around a little bit with early Christian philosophers, but ended up turning to atheism and studied Dostoevsky and Kafka. At age 20, he got involved with a partner of a friend, Simone Ie. And she was a morphine addict, and his uncle did not approve, surprise, surprise, but Camus ended up marrying her and then found out she was having an affair with her doctor, and so they got divorced. He ended up marrying once again, but actually had many uh, affairs during his lifetime, including a really public one with a Spanish actress named Maria Casares, which upset his wife, Francine for. Uh, very much, who ended up having a mental breakdown. But that all comes later. Camus first joined the French Communist Party as a way to fight what he perceived as inequalities between the Europeans and the natives of Algeria, although he wasn't a Marxist, which was uh, kind of the, the flavor of communism at that time. He joined the Algerian Communist Party and organized a workers' theater, uh, but then he got kicked out because he objected to Stalin and Stalin's tactics. At this point, he's starting to form his own philosophy in his belief about human dignity over bureaucracies that aim for what he perceived to be efficiency over justice. And he also objected to authoritative colonialism, which he certainly would have seen in Algeria, and ended up going to work for a leftist newspaper. But then that got banned as uh, fascist regimes were rising in Europe. In 1940, which turned out to be an incredible year for him, he flew to Paris to take a new job at 
Paris Soir as the editor-in-chief, which must have been a heck of a promotion. Uh, he nearly finished his first cycle, and he divides his work into cycles. Each cycle is made up of a novel, an essay, and a play. And that first cycle was L'étranger, the stranger, or the foreigner in English. Uh, the myth of Sisyphus and Caligula was the play. When the Germans were marching on Paris, he fled to Lyon, where he met and married pianist, mathematician Francine Faure, and then moved to Oran. Eventually, he moved on to the French Alps because of his tuberculosis, and then he worked on his second cycle, La Peste, the plague, which is what we're talking about today, and then also the play Le Malentendu. By 1943, he was pretty well known because of his success in writing, and he went back to Paris and at this point became kind of the Camus that we know. He became part of a circle of intellectuals, Jean-Paul Sartre, Simone de Beauvoir, André Breton, and then also that's when he met uh, Maria Casares. He became part of the underground resistance movement, working as a journalist and editor of a banned newspaper, Combat, where he wrote under a pseudonym, and he also used fake ID cards to escape detection. Uh, you may remember that he also, at this point, wrote a piece of work called Four Letters to a German Friend. It was kind of interesting uh, that he felt obliged to explain why he thought resistance was important, an interesting window into his thought process. After the war was over, he lived as a celebrity, giving lectures and continuing to work. At that point, he was working on L'Homme Révolté, The Rebel, uh, which was aptly named because it got him into huge trouble. He attacked totalitarian communism and advocated for libertarian socialism. His rejection of communism, especially of the Soviet regime, which he considered totalitarian, caused a massive rift with his French colleagues and provoked a final split with Sartre. And he criticized the Soviet apologists and their, quote, decision to call total servitude freedom, and that did it with Sartre. On a personal note, I have to comment that many of our recent podcast episodes have had a personal component to them, and this one is no exception. When I was in college, I was became a big fan of this kind of philosophy and read a lot of Sartre and Camus and about existentialism in particular. Um, but I have to admit that my impression after uh, studying a lot about Sartre is that everyone ends up basically on the outs with Sartre. He just seems to be the kind of person it's really hard to stay friends with. But Camus crossed his buddies in other ways. He was a supporter of European integration and founded the French Committee for European Federation in 1944. In 1947, he founded a trade union movement for revolutionary syndicalism. And he rejected the negativity and nihilism of André Breton and wanted to express the positive side of surrealism and existentialism. Camus was different. He was a moralist, and he wasn't willing to waive those beliefs in the name of politics, which in that era got him into a lot of trouble. I'm reminded of our brief discussion during the episode about Catherine Ann Porter, 
And she talks about, with her communist leader, about their protest saving the lives of Sacco and Vansetti, and her communist leader says, no way, that's, that's not what we're doing here. What good are they to us alive? We want them dead for our purposes. And you can imagine how offensive that was to Porter and how offensive that would be to Camus. He was really troubled with the French collaborators and what they had done and wrote, now the only moral value is courage, which is useful here for judging the puppets and chatterboxes who pretend to speak in the name of the people. After the bloody post-war tribunals got underway, however, he became a lifelong opponent to capital punishment. So that is the backdrop for this uh, novel, The Plague, and it presents a snapshot of life in Iran as seen through this distinct lens that we've been describing, particularly from what you might call an absurdist point of view. Shortly before Christmas Day, 1946, he delivered the book manuscript to his publisher. He was very unhappy with what he had written, but he couldn't seem to see how to fix it. And so he consoled himself by saying, this, quote, complete failure will teach me modesty. In fact, that book, The Plague, became an immediate bestseller upon its publication. And even now, it's a very popular work, a very compelling, where we talk about the defeat of one form of totalitarianism, Nazism, uh, giving way to another equally grim totalitarianism of communism. And really, it's about teaching morality uh, in the midst of disease situation, an emergency situation, and politics to others. So here's how it goes. Sometime in the 1940s, the plague settles upon Iran, uh, a city in French Algeria. And fearful and feckless, Iran's political leadership at first refuses to name the threat for what it is, and they uh, justify their dithering about what's happening uh, by pointing out that the medical officials have refused to affirm with complete certainty that the plague is in fact the plague, even though uh, dead rats are piling up in the street. And Kamir describes how these rats are being ordered to be taken away, but there's no acknowledgement by the officials about what these rats represent. The book's protagonist is a Dr. Ryu, and he exclaims early in the book, it has small importance whether or not you call it the plague or some kind of fever. The important thing is to prevent it killing off half the population of this town. And we'll go back to this idea of how you describe things and the importance of words. The body count continues to climb. And finally, after the daily deaths rise to 30, the officials finally quarantine the entire city. And most of Iran's residents, who never faced anything like the plague before, passively submit to being quarantined. But mostly they are just passively living their lives. They still float around the city. They seem completely adrift. There's a small group of individuals who join forces to resist the plague. And they form sanitary squads to care for the ill and bury the dead. And it's not clear why they do this, because they're certainly looking at a situation that appears hopeless. So these characters 
Uh, there's this doctor who's, uh, you know, not a rebel, kind of a practical type person. There's an investigative journalist who happens to find himself in town, and a petty official, and then a mysterious traveler. And they just all seem to be here by accident in the in kind of the wrong place at the wrong time when the citizens and everyone is locked into the walls of the city. Some of them aren't even from the area and at first make some attempts to sneak away, to kind of bribe their way out, uh, particularly those who have friends and family on the outside. But eventually they turn their forces to helping the situation inside the walls of the city and uh, reflect that kind of moral choice that they're making. The characters in The Plague are really interesting, and I uh, recommend reading the book just to follow each of them and what their own narrative arc represents. So, for example, Father Panalu is a Jesuit priest, and he steps in when things start to go crazy and uh, starts uh, sermonizing a lot and drawing people to him and then trying to explain what's happening as an act of God and why God has sent those here and finds himself increasingly uh, put to the test to explain terrible things that are happening, like the death of children, so and so on and so forth. But he continues to present religion as as a source of hope uh, for the people. And uh, I'll let you uh, read the book to find out what happens to him. And then this uh, traveler is also a very interesting character. He's kind of an eccentric figure and sort of swings back and forth between kind of antisocial behavior and then changing his personality during the course of the outbreak to help and to try and participate in some way. He, at, some, at one point, starts to try and profit from the plague by selling contraband and, in fact, uh, make some money uh, at the expense of other people. Uh, but again, I'll let you read the book to see what happens to him. But all of these characters represent a certain kind of approach, and then, uh, as Camus presents them, they are more or less uh, successful. And then finally, a word about the authority here. So the prefect believes at first that this talk of plague is overrated and a false alarm. Uh, eventually, his medical associates convince him that you probably ought to do something. And so he introduces some limited measures to try and combat the plague. And when they don't work, then he tries to sidestep the whole issue, saying that he'll ask the government for orders. Some of this sounds familiar, right? And then he really uh, grabs the bull by the horns and really locks the city down and, and really tightens up regulations and becomes a, you know, very authoritarian. Uh, also, interesting message from uh, Camus. And so he uh, closes the town and posts sentries at the exits. And in fact, in some cases, uh, people are shot at who are attempting to escape. Eventually, the plague does retreat, and the walls of the town are opened, and people begin to associate with people from the outside and get uh, reunited with their loved ones. And the narrator then uh, explains that he wrote the chronicle to simply say what we learn in the midst of plagues, 
There are more things to admire in men than to despise. There's an interesting essay on lithub.com by Liesl Schillinger, hope I'm not butchering that name, about the plague. And I thought it had some interesting observations about it. The writer says, although his novel, Camus' novel, tracks the progression of a specific epidemic in a specific city, country, and time frame, Camus' true subject lies outside of time and place. His intent is metaphorical. He addresses any contagion that might overtake any society from a disease like cholera, the Spanish influenza, AIDS, SARS, and yes, COVID-19, to a corrosive ideology like fascism or totalitarianism, which can infect a whole population. Camus saw a connection between physical and psychological infection, which his book sutures together. Uh, So he goes on to talk about how the uh, city's citizens initially misinterpret the early indications and miss their broad significance. He says, for a time, the only action they take is denouncing the local sanitation department and complaining about authorities. Quote, in this respect, our townsfolk were like everybody else, wrapped up in themselves. They were humanists. They disbelieved in pestilences. Camus shows how easy it is to mistake an epidemic for an annoyance. And the authorities go on to say that uh, in the early days, they believe the public mustn't be alarmed, quote, that wouldn't do at all. And so the prefect announces that he is personally convinced that it's a false alarm, interesting words, and a low-level bureaucrat Uh, insists that the disease must not be identified officially as plague, but should be referred to merely as a special type of fever. And that uh, brings us back to this idea of basically calling a spade a spade and the importance of language and how you describe something. In an essay in the Los Angeles Review of Books, Robert Zaretsky talks about a code of ethics that is shared amongst this small band of people who work together to try and fight back against the plague. Or one of the members expresses this code when he talks to the doctor about a childhood experience, uh, watching his father, who was a state prosecutor, talk in court about the death penalty. And the father was arguing for the death penalty, and his son was shocked by the contrast of a man sitting there in flesh and blood, sitting in the dock, and the euphemisms that his father was using in order to put this man to death. And so he explains that we must keep an unending watch on our own selves and our own words. And he calls this an ethics of attention. He says, the good man is the man who has the fewest lapses of attention. And eventually, he says, uh, this requires them to see and speak clearly. Quote, all of our troubles spring from our failure to use plain, clear-cut language. These issues were of particular concern to Camus because he was very upset with the disguises that there were about the atrocities that were committed by totalitarian regimes, and he uh, was really enraged by hiding behind ideology. And right after the plague was uh, published, he said, Today's things are clear, and we must call something concentrationnaire if that's what it is, even if it is socialism. In one sense, I shall never again be polite. 
It was one of the reasons that he joined the French Resistance, and he said later, we were fighting, quote, for that fine distinction between the true and the false. And of course, that's uh, driven home in the plague also, where uh, one of the characters says that they must insist on calling things by their name. And by getting the words right and describing the world as it is, that's how you can act right and make the world more the way it should be. Things like totalitarianism, which is what the plague is standing in for, gets words wrong. It uses them to describe a world that isn't and creates a world that never should be. It comes to power through the harrowing of terror and maintains itself through the hollowing of language. Very well put. Again, that moral struggle is seen through the lens of absurdity, where ultimately there's no way you can save these people. In truth, the world is hopeless, but when the doctor is reminded of that, he says, yes, but that is no reason for giving up the struggle. And that's the message that he wants to bring home here, that this is the point of human purpose, the demand, in fact, for justice and dignity. And in The Rebel, Camus insists that one of the key elements of our resistance against absurdity is, quote, to insist on plain language so as not to increase universal falsehood. And in fact, this is the nature of struggle, that it will not lead to enduring victories, but uh, just as there is no reason for hope, there is no reason to despair. I want to go back to this theme of underreaction because I think it's so poignant for today. Camus wrote that the authorities were liable to minimize the threat of an epidemic until the evidence becomes undeniable, but that an underreaction is really more dangerous than an overreaction. But he says it's just really a human trait. It's a universal human frailty. He says, everybody knows that pestilences have a way of recurring in the world, yet somehow we find it hard to believe in ones that crash down on our heads from a blue sky. That feels uh, very appropriate for now. And also this idea of we're all in it together. Uh, So one of the characters, you may recall, was attempting to leave town, to sneak out and to get a certificate of health so he could leave. And the doctor says to him, there are thousands of people placed as you are in this town. And what happens is that those people sense the pointlessness of dwelling on their own personal plights. The plague erases the uniqueness of each man's life, even as it heightens your awareness of your vulnerability and powerlessness. And so the catastrophe becomes collective. Camus writes, a feeling normally as individual as the ache of separation from those one loves suddenly became a feeling in which all shared alike. This ache, along with fear, becomes, quote, the greatest affliction of the long period of exile that lay ahead. I hope we're uh, soon at the end of our long period of exile. Uh, So to go back to Camus' life here for a minute, uh, his relationship with the Marxist left deteriorated even more during the Algerian War, which was Algeria's War of Independence, when they finally got away from France in 1962. And a million so-called pieds noirs, which are the French citizens who were born in Algeria, fled Algeria in 1962. And although Camus had shown himself uh, to be quite supportive of Arab rights, 
he was not as critical as the uh, as his leftist friends would have liked of the French actions during the war because he said he couldn't really imagine an independent Algeria. He clearly is conflicted. In fact, in the plague, there are no Arab characters, according to some critics. And that stance uh, continues to make him a controversial figure in France, not so much in the United States, where we don't know, we're not quite as sensitive to that, uh, but especially amongst uh, French Algerians. I could go on and on about Camus' politics and writing. He's such an interesting character, but I'll close with just a couple of things. He won the Nobel Prize in 1957 at the age of 44, so he was the second youngest recipient of the prize after Rudyard Kipling, who actually won at age 42, so yeah, go figure. With that money, he adapted and directed Dostoevsky's novel, Demons, for the stage, which opened in 1959. Camus was killed in 1960 at the age of 46 in a car accident. He was traveling with, I think it was actually his editor, or his publisher, it looks like, and Camus' wife and children had already gone back to Paris, but Camus decided to drive with his publisher in this uh, fancy car, and the car crashed uh, along the Lyon-Paris highway. Camus, who was in the passenger seat, wasn't wearing a safety belt, and he died on the spot. He was only 46 years old. 144 pages of a handwritten manuscript were found in the car, and this was uh, his unfinished novel, Le Premier Homme, which was based on his childhood in Algeria, and he had high hopes for that work. He thought it might be his finest work. And at his funeral, uh, Jean-Paul Sartre read a eulogy, uh, forgave him enough to read a eulogy for him, and paid tribute to his, what Sartre called his, quote, stubborn humanism. So there you have it, a look back at Camus' novel, The Plague, in the context of his life and his philosophy. That's it, everybody. You've made it through another episode of Dear Discreet Guide, Trouble at Work. During the pandemic, we'll be changing our format in honor of those who are quarantined or working on the front lines. We'll put out shorter shows on a daily or near daily basis early in the morning to start your day on a positive and interesting note. We'll be considering work-related issues relevant while COVID-19 is impacting the world. If you have a question or a comment or a message for our listeners, please get in touch. We'd love to hear from you. You can reach us through the website, discreetguide.com, D-I-S-C-R-E-E-T-E, where you can also find other resources about working better together. Thank you for joining my quest to improve our workplaces, our work lives, and our lives in general. And thanks for listening. We look forward to returning to our old format when the world has returned to a more normal state. In the meantime, please hang in there, stay safe, and know that I care about you. <laughs>